Hey, there's a, there's a constant wrestling in my life. I don't know if you're anything like me in this regard, but there's a constant wrestling in my life between the things that I need and the things that I want. Thank you. Yeah, all right. We're with, you're with me already. All right. <laughs> I got a lot of amens, and we're not even at the text yet. We're in trouble. There's a constant tension in my life between the things that I need and the things that I want. When I'm hungry, I need a salad. I want ice cream, right? It's a very simple example. When I'm stressed out, I need to work out. I need to go for a long run. What I often want is to sit in front of the TV with something mindless and relax and eat ice cream, right? <laughs> At work, the thing that I need is people around me who will show me my blind spots, will speak truth into my life, and challenge me to get better every single day. The thing that I want is people just to pat me on the back and tell me I'm awesome and bring me ice cream, right? I mean, that would be awesome workplace. Yes, I do have issues. The reality is there's a constant tension in my life, a tension between my flesh and my heart, between what I need and what I want. And what's true in the, in the physical world and in my physical life is also true in my spiritual life. There is a tension, a war within me between the Jesus that I need and the Jesus that I want. The God that I want to just bless me and make me prosper and the God who promises to change me and refine me like we just sang. And there's constantly this tension in my life between those two people, the people that I know Jesus, the person that I know Jesus to be, but the person that I want him to be for me today. And we see this tension even with those around Jesus. The people who followed Jesus wrestled with this tension between the God that they wanted and the God that they needed. And the problem for us in our faith is that so often the God that we want is the one that we hold on to far more than the God that we need. And it's an age-old problem. Today, as we begin this new series, we're going to begin our march towards Easter. Over the next several weeks, we're going to begin tracing Jesus' final steps to the cross, preparing our hearts for, for the moment when Christ gave up his life for us. And today we begin that journey with what's commonly placed as, as Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, the beginning of Passion Week. We're going to preempt that, though, so we can continue journeying along with all of the significant steps that Jesus took, because with each step, Jesus was intentional, and each step and each act was designed to scream out at us, this is love. This is what love looks like. One of Jesus' followers, the disciple John, would write to us, this is love, not that we loved him, right, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we're going to look at this example of love, but today what we're going to see is that so often we look to Jesus only for what we want, and we run the risk then of missing not only what we need, but end up missing that which we have hoped for all of our lives. So turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. In the New Testament, two-thirds of the way through your Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one under the seat in front of you or power on whatever smart device you use. Matthew 21. This is the moment that begins this march towards the cross, this, this week that we call Holy Week or Passion Week, which refers to Christ's suffering for us. 
It is the triumphal entry. And Matthew records this for us in Matthew chapter 21. Begin with me at verse 1. Now when they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he has entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So this moment marks the beginning of this march to the cross. Up to this time, Jesus has largely been ministering outside of the cities, outside of Jerusalem in particular. He's come in a few times, but his ministry has largely been outside of the cities because of persecution and opposition, because of the crowds, his inability to, to work with many of those who are opposing him. But here in this moment, Jesus goes head on and begins into Jerusalem where he would spend the final week of his life in Jerusalem. It says in verse one that he drew near. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives. This is a hill that was to the east of Jerusalem. And standing up on the Mount of Olives, you'd be able to see all of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. And we have actually a picture for you so you can visualize, picture where Jesus is in this moment. Standing on the east of Jerusalem, you'd be on, on the Mount of Olives. You'd be looking out over the holy city. And in particular, you would note as the shining star in the city, the, the tabernacle, the temple on the Temple Mount. We see it today as that gold dome. That's actually the Dome of the Rock. Islam has moved into the neighborhood, but if you see the surrounding wall, this massive wall, the, the trees inside the wall, that entire wall section is the, the Temple Mount. In Jesus' day and age, the temple was this massive structure that existed there. Jesus has his eyes set on this place where the people are worshiping God. He's heading to the city of God's people. And he's descending from this place, the Mount of Olives. Matthew records this because it's significant. See, it's significant. It's a significant place. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah says that this, this Mount of Olives, this will be the place where one day God will come. He will literally place his foot here on this mount, and that will begin the moment of ushering in his kingdom. Zechariah 14, 4 and 5. So this is significant. It's a place of anticipation. It's a place where everyone would have expected the Messiah to come. He would have begun his journey here into the city. They would have been waiting for it. And lo and behold, here comes Jesus then descending from this mount into Jerusalem. 
Matthew says Jesus sends two disciples ahead of him, verses two through five, to go before him and to get a donkey and its colt, a colt being a foal, a young donkey that's yet to be broken in or ridden. So these disciples go ahead and they bring to Jesus this foal. Here again, Matthew records for us, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is now layering prophecy on top of prophecy. Not only does Zechariah say the Messiah, the king, would come to one day come and usher in the kingdom from this mount, but Zechariah 9.9 would say that he would come in, just as Matthew records, he would come in, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a beast of burden. But notice what Zechariah says here as well. He says, behold, your king is coming. He's giving us the full picture of who Jesus is, Jesus coming, Jesus as the Christ and the king, humble and mounted on a donkey. This was the expectation. And this is why so many people were amassed around Jesus and so many were spreading their cloaks on the ground and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Understand when a king would come into a city in this day and age, Take, for example, the emperor of Rome. When he would come in, there would be a processional before him, crying out, playing music. And if a king was coming into a place, they would often roll out a garment. They would roll out a carpet. We now do it in Hollywood, right? For our royalty. But the ancient tradition is they would literally roll out a carpet for royalty. Why? For two reasons. First, Royalty was not worthy of stepping in the dust. They were too good for that. But secondly, the people are laying cloaks in this moment, not just because the king is too good for dust. They lay their cloaks out before him as an act of submission. It's an act of submission. It's a posture. It's taking off something of yours and laying it beneath the feet of the king. It's indicative that you are laying your life before him and he has authority over you. The people are doing this while also others are cutting branches. We're told they are palm branches along with other branches. The palm was significant because it was a symbol of victory. It was a national symbol, a symbol of identity for Israel. It was a symbol of victory, a symbol of peace. This king would come. He would usher in peace. He would overthrow Rome. They were expecting victory now with this Messiah coming down off of this mount. And as such, they were crying out in this loud proclamation, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save. The king has come, humble, riding on a donkey. Save, save. The air is thick with the expectation that Jesus, the king, has come to usher in something new. The reality is the people were unmistakably heralding Jesus as king, the one who had come to save them from Rome. And this was the problem. This was the problem. The problem was that the crowd could only see Jesus for who they wanted him to be. The crowd could only see him as a physical king and a political savior. But Jesus had not come to be an earthly savior for an earthly kingdom. Jesus had come to be an eternal king for an eternal kingdom. 
And here's the thing. The Jesus that we want, the Jesus that I want, is the one who will come to deal with all of my earthly problems. But the Jesus that I need is the one who's come to deal with my eternal ones. And so often I feel this tension in my soul. And I believe Jesus hears this tension so often when I pray. The Jesus I want is the one who will deal with my earthly realities that are bothering me, but the Jesus I need is the one who's come to deal with the reality of my heart. This is why he came. And our problem, just like the crowd, is that we view this life as the more important life, the significant life, the life that we want Jesus to change and Jesus to fix and Jesus to redirect for our good will and our good pleasure. And so we beg Jesus to fix our bills and write our budget. We beg Jesus to bring us what we lack and fix all that is wrong here. We ask Jesus to come and to, to interrupt our life and redirect it in a better path to a better place. But the gospel begs us to see that our biggest problem is not the world around us, but the gospel begs us to see that our biggest problem is the world within us, our hearts. And Jesus has come primarily with his focus being our heart. Is it that Jesus doesn't care about the world around us? No, he absolutely cares. But Jesus understands the way to deal with everything is by beginning with the heart. And so often we want Jesus just to fix the externals and largely to leave us unscathed in the process. And when all we do is seek Jesus for what we want and fixing our earthly problems, then we become players in this story, replaying the scene, replaying the triumphal entry, forgetting that his first priority is eternal instead of earthly. But Matthew is not done. Matthew continues from this moment. The story continues. Matthew ushers us immediately into the next scene. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Matthew here moves from one scene immediately to the next. He moves from the triumphal entry and then ushers Jesus into the temple to keep us focused on this tension, the tension between our, our hearts and what they want and our hearts and what they need. The Jesus that we want and the Jesus that we need. Matthew wants to keep you in that tension. So read this story now from that place of want and need and the tension between the two. Many scholars and other gospels indicate that this scene of flipping the tables in the temple may have happened the next day. Matthew sandwiches them together, though, 
because his primary concern is to deal with our hearts and to help us see the tension in our hearts. He says that Jesus entered the temple and he drove out. He drove out all who sold, verse 12, and bought in the temple. He overturned the temples, or the tables rather, of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The, the temple was this massive complex. You saw the picture before. It took up that massive foundation. It was this massive complex. People would come from all across the area. They would travel far and wide. They would spend March break cameling in to Jerusalem, okay? And in the midst of that journey, they would come to this place to see the temple, to worship their God, to have this moment. But with Rome having taken over, Rome instituting their own politics and their own currency, the temple operated on a different currency. The temple had its own currency. And so if you're coming in and traveling in, especially as a foreigner, then in order to give your offering, to pay the temple tax, you would have to convert your monies much like landing someplace foreign and walking through the terminal and before you get your bags, you hit that exchange place, right? And they charge you a fee to convert your dollars. And so here all these people would come in and the money changers would be there to help them convert their currency so that they could pay in the temple currency. They could give their offerings. Additionally, with that, there were this these marketplace vendors who were there to, to, to give to you, to sell to you what you needed to make your sacrifices, your offerings. In the case here, Matthew indicates he, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Pigeons and doves being those sacrifices for, for those in, in, in a lower estate. And so Jesus here, you get the scene, is flipping these tables, and not just flipping them, he is driving them out because what began in the temple as a good thing with an honest intent to help people come and make it easy for them to worship has over time grown and spiraled to become this thing that has become an income. Because the reality is, where else do you go to exchange your currency in a Roman culture? Where else do you go to get the temple currency but here? And having journeyed all this way to worship your God, finding yourself now at need to make the right sacrifice in the right way, where do you go? And knowing this, then everything was sold at a premium. And the religious leaders and the high priests were okay with it because anything that, any business that happened in the temple, they received a portion what had begun with good intent to help people come closer to God had spiraled into an industry where you were at the mercy of the merchants. It had now become a barrier in worship. And this infuriates Jesus because Jesus had come to remove the barriers. And so verse 12 and 13, not only does he flip the tables, he drives them out, all the while quoting from Isaiah 56, 7, but Matthew only quotes part of it. Isaiah 56, 7 says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Literally, for all nations. Jesus understands God intended people from everywhere to come and seek him. God's heart is that all nations would come to him. And Jesus in this moment is quoting then Isaiah 56, 
that God intended this to be a place for all people to have access to God, and he has come to deliver on that access. But notice the flip side of this. The flip side, driving out the Jews who are in the temple selling, who does Jesus invite near? Verse 14 says he invites near the blind and the lame. Those on the margins, those often ostracized for their infirmities, those considered somehow spiritually tainted, Jesus draws close and he heals. And children in the background still crying out this refrain from when he came down the mount, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna declaring him the rightful heir to David's throne. And the priests are indignant. Shut the kids up. This is a sacred space. Children are meant to be seen, not heard. And Jesus defends them. Have you not read? Out of the mouths of babes that God has ordained that they would sing his praises. Do you see the contrast in this text? Jesus is driving out the Jews from their own temple, the Jews who've been obscuring the path to God, making it difficult. And instead, he's inviting near those who are broken, inviting near those without power. And this infuriates the leaders. They wanted Jesus to challenge others and drive out Rome, and instead he is driving out the religious and he is embracing the broken. He wanted Jesus to change Rome and Rome's heart, but instead he is challenging their heart. And here's the thing, if I'm honest with myself, the Savior that I want is one who will come and change everyone else's heart. And the Savior that I need is the one who's come to deal with mine. It's the tension in the story. It's the tension lived out in people that we often point a finger to. We say, they didn't get it. They missed it. They were so wrong. When so often I'm right there in the middle of the story too. The savior that I want is the one who will come and change everyone else. The savior that I need is the one who recognizes that my heart is astray too, and my heart needs changing. I want Jesus to deal with people that I don't like. I want Jesus to deal with people who have hurt me and offended me. I want Jesus to tell my wife when she's wrong and I'm right. And I'm assuming that you chuckle because you've been there too. I've told the story before, but when we were early married, newly married in our first few years, we, we thought we were big time. We got a two-room apartment, and in that second room, we bought a futon because that's a convenient way to have a couch and a bed when you have no money. And in evenings that we would argue, evenings that we would go our separate ways in disgust, I would go into that, my, my study where I would study in grad school, and I would sit on that black futon, and I would pray for my wife's heart to change. And I very quickly learned that that would become the place where God would meet me and talk to me about my heart. It never failed that when I was railing against her, that God would open my eyes to me. And so I stopped praying on that futon. <laughs> Found another seat where I was always right. 
And I wish I could say that in 20 years, I've matured beyond that. But the reality is there's still tension in my flesh between what I want and what I need. The Jesus I want to change others. The Jesus that I talked to on Saturday when the neighbors across the street are playing music at an abnormal volume and I'm trying to take a nap, hypothetically speaking. And the Jesus that I need that comes and helps me see that very often I'm not a good neighbor either. See, there's tension. And yet so often my prayer life really revolves only around what I need or what I want. Jesus was not the king that they expected, and this was not at all the revolution that they were wanting. It was absolutely the revolution that they needed, a revolution of the human heart, a revolution against sin and death. And Jesus knew this is what they needed. The reality is that Jesus has priorities that are different than ours. He sees a kingdom that's different than this one. And he wants more for you and for me than the things that we so often get caught up in the here and the now. Does he not? But the only way he can purify our hearts and the only way he can purify my heart is by prying my grip off of the things that I'm holding on to instead. And sometimes Jesus comes into my life and he flips some tables. Isn't it interesting? I don't know if it happens to you or not. It certainly happens to me. But on times and seasons when I'm praying for physical provision, for God to do things physically in my life, it never ceases to amaze me how those are the weeks where something will happen to the car or something will break in the house. And that's the moment I get frustrated with God because he's not answering my prayers and polishing up my kingdom, right? I prayed for provision. Now I have a dead car battery, I prayed for provision. I just drove over a nail. Like, Jesus, what are you doing to me? And what I fail to realize is that while I'm holding on to this kingdom, Jesus is trying to flip tables, showing me that my security exists not in this kingdom. But my security needs to be found in something that will never fade, that will never discharge, that will never go flat, that will never depreciate a kingdom that will reign forever. And there's a tension in my heart. And I think there might be tension in yours too. So the question is, what do we do with this? What's the takeaway? I think this story leaves us with a simple question. The question is this. What are we holding on to that we need to lay down before Jesus? The wants, the desires, the expectations that are getting in the way of him doing the greater work that we need deep inside? What are we holding on to that we need to lay down before Jesus? Just as the throngs of people, the crowd surrounded him and laid their cloaks before him on the road, symbolic of their surrender, symbolic of their submission to this king who had come, Oh, that we and oh, that me in these moments would be willing to lay down things that I am expecting and pining for and seek Jesus to do the greater work that's truly needed. Maybe for you, this is a picture, you need to lay before Jesus this, this picture of, of how you think life should be. 
Maybe for you, you need to lay down before Jesus the career path that you thought you deserved, the one that you've worked so hard for that you keep seeing other people leapfrog, and they take the rank before you do. They get the position, they get the post. Maybe for you, it's a picture of how much you think should be in the bank. Maybe it's the relationship that you want him to provide or the relationship or the person you want him to change or to fix. And maybe instead of holding on to that, instead consider what Jesus has come to do in you, this greater thing. Remember at the beginning I said that we have to wrestle with this reality in our hearts between wants and needs. And if we hold too, too tightly to what we want, we stand at risk of missing what we need, but we also, we also stand at risk of missing all we had ever hoped for. What do I mean by that? The reality is Jesus said he came to give life and life abundant. The peace that I hope for won't be found by just sitting on that seat in the couch trying to get away from it all because it always catches up. The peace that I'm yearning for won't be found if everyone else just is a puppet and does my will because eventually that always breaks down. The freedom that I want isn't freedom found in the bottom of a bank account or a certain retirement plan. The freedom that Jesus came to offer was a freedom from sin and death, the hope of an eternity with him. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, pastors, theologians, wrote this, God wants to offer you life, but not an improved old life. And so often my prayers center around improvements to what currently is. Jesus, add all of these things and leave me largely as I am. Because if I have these things, then I'll be happy. And Jesus says, no, I want the life that is truly life. And it comes by flipping some tables within. And it's in these moments when I'm willing to submit my life to him and surrender the desires, surrender the wants, and surrender what the future looks like and how I think people should act or behave. When I surrender these moments, Jesus gets more of me. And in these moments, I get more of him. And what always follows is peace and freedom and joy. But it takes asking that question, what are you holding on to that you need to lay down before Jesus? And would you today be willing to do just that? See, this is the gospel. The gospel tells us, and Jesus came to prove to us that we could not make it on our own. We needed a savior. And so God so loved the world that he gave his son to march into Jerusalem and to do the unexpected to flip the tables, to pull us out of just going through the religious motions and instead deal with the heart beneath the surface, that we might find the life that is truly life in him.
If you want to talk to someone about a decision you've made or let us know how God is moving through this series, visit nebc.ch contact. Be sure to stay connected with us throughout the week on social media, download our app, or subscribe to our weekly podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's message, and we hope that you join us as we continue to make disciples on mission for Jesus Christ.